Well, familiarity breeds what? Contempt. I'm not sure I really believe that, but familiarity does breed familiarity. Uh, familiarity makes us dull to what we need to be excited about. For example, living in this beautiful city, Charleston, South Carolina, a destination place for weddings and vacations, uh, glorious beauty. And yet, you talk to people who lived here a long time, and they, they say, they visit here and they say, man, we love this city. You say, yeah, but it's so humid in July, August, and September. It's just so humid. They say, we're from Wisconsin, and it's minus 20 September, October, November, December, January, February, and March. And it's 70 degrees here. Or friends, you know, friends for years and years, and they're there, and they're faithful, and they're kind, and you end up taking them for granted. Your marriage can easily become a familiarity routine of the trivial. You're, when you're dating and courting and winning each other's affections and you leave little notes underneath the windshield when you slip in when they're not watching or for some of you on the horse and buggy when they weren't watching, they're in the general store, you get married and you, you want to please them and you do the right things and you make just the right supper and then when the kids leave, it's popcorn and cheese every night. And you just get familiar. And you take each other for granted. And then you don't talk. And then you go to work and somebody looks at you and says, you know, I wish my husband listened like you did. Don't go there. Do not go there. And so familiarity breeds familiarity. And it even happens in the Christian faith. For example, there's a church that received a report card from the Lord, and the Lord says, I know your zeal, I know your patient endurance, I know your toil, I know that there are people who've walked among you who claim to be apostles, and you've tested them by the apostolic message, and you have rejected them. You're orthodox, you're Bible-believing, you're Christ-focused, but I have this against you church at Ephesus, you've left your first love. Repent, remember, and do the things you did at first. And I, I believe the way we fight against familiarity is by the constant renewal of our minds, by the power of the Holy Spirit through the Word of God, so that our affections are inflamed. In 2 Timothy 1, Paul says this young preacher, Timothy, Timothy, stir up the gift you've received. Let your affections be inflamed by the authority of Scripture and the power of the Word in your life by the Spirit. And so we come to this study on prayer that's incredibly important. I'm going to walk through the Lord's Prayer. And prayer is a means by which our affections are inflamed and energized to walk with the Lord by the power of the Spirit. A definition of prayer is in the larger catechism. It says, what is prayer? And the answer is prayer is offering up of our desires to the Lord in the name of our mediator Christ by the help of the Holy Spirit with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of His mercies. That's a good definition. Offering up of our desires to the Lord in the name of Christ, our mediator, we come only in the name of Christ by the help of the Holy Spirit with confession of our sins and grateful acknowledgement of His tender mercies. Prayer is fighting against the status quo. Prayer is fighting against the familiarity that breeds lethargy. Prayer energizes. Another confessional question says this, is why, why does our Lord Christ teach us to pray our Father who art in heaven? Answer, 
immediately at the very first of the model prayer. Our Lord teaches us to cry out, Our Father who art in heaven, to excite, I like that word, excite in us. Childlike reverence and confidence in God as our Father who is unchanging and always giving. So as, as you think about the Abba Father goodness of God, it should excite in us a childlike reverence. Reverence, yes, but childlike reverence and confidence in our Father who never fails. One of my favorite Puritans, John Owen, just two quotes from Owen. He says this, to the degree, you'll see this later this month, to, to the degree we see how much God loves us, we will delight in Him and no more. To the degree we see how much God delights in us or loves us, then we will correspondingly delight in Him and no more. Every other discovery of God without this will but make the soul fly from Him. But if the heart be fascinated with the superiority of the Abba love of the Father, it cannot choose but to be overpowered, conquered, and endeared unto Him. And then later in this little book called Communion with God, Volume 2, in his works, he says, Unfamiliarity with our mercies and our privileges is our sin as well as our trouble. Unfamiliarity with the wonderful Abba love of the Father displayed on the cross, poured into our lives by the Holy Spirit. Unfamiliarity with our mercies and our privileges is our sin as well as our trouble. We do not listen to the voice of the Spirit which is given to us that we may know the things that are freely bestowed on us by God. This leads to frustration when we might rejoice and to being weak when we might be strong in the Lord. How few of the saints, how few are they who have close communion with God? Let me just ask you this. Do you just sit back and say, the Father loves me? The Father has an outreaching, embraceive, eternal love for me, his child by faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross. The Lord loves me. Galatians 4 talks about the apex of God's work. In Galatians 4 it says, it says this, verse 4 through 7, it says that, but when the time had fully come, fully come, the eternal covenant brought to fruition, when the time had fully come, God sent his son born of a virgin, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive the full rights as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Abba, Father, dear Father. Behold the greatness and the mercy of God. Even Jeremiah 29, a well-known Old Testament passage where, where, where the Lord is talking to his people at the height of the Babylonian captivity. Jerusalem has been destroyed. They're in a foreign land. And God says to his people tenderly, he says, for you know the plans I have for you, plans for welfare or wholeness or shalom, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call to me and come and pray and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek for me with all of your heart. Do you hear the Abba love of the Father? I love you. 
I'm, and I, one, of the, one of the most healthy things I do occasionally is just I read a book on comparative religions, and I, I just read some stuff on Islam, and Islam has 99 names for God. God the sustainer, God the judge, God the preserver, God the eternal. So 99 names, not one of them speaks closely to the familial love of Abba, Father. Not one. Abba, Father. Our Father who art in heaven. You ask a Buddhist, is God a Father? And the Buddhist will say, we can't define God. How in the world can you say He's a Father? God just is. He is everywhere. He is everything. You can't define God. You just exist. We say, no, God is Abba, Father, who in the fullness of time took on the form of flesh and died on the cross for our sins and rose victorious over death and the Holy Spirit's been poured out upon us. He is triune. He is glorious. He is Abba, Father. Do you ever sit back and say, Abba, Father? There's an old hymn that says, God our Father, we adore Thee. We Thy children bless Thy name. Chosen in the Christ before Thee, we are holy without blame. We adore Thee. We adore you because we've been eternally loved. We adore you because we are without blame. You're Abba Father for us. The apex of your love is the cross. Abba Father, our Father. So just two points. First of all, we live because of Abba Father in absolute safety. Nothing happens in our life that doesn't come through the nail-scarred hands of Jesus. That's hard sometimes, but it gives you hope. Psalm 103 says this. It talks about the, the love of the Father. And, and it says this in verse 14 and 15. It says, verse 13, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For, for he knows our frame, he remembers we are but dust. Compassion. Compassion. As, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord Jehovah shows compassion to those who fear him. He knows our frame. He knows that life is fleeting. He knows that we're a vapor, and he loves us. Isaiah 49, verses 15 to 16 says this, Can, can a woman... Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraven you on the palms of my hands. It's a rhetorical question. He says, can, can, can a woman, can, can a woman, a nursing mother, can she forget the child at her breast? And then God says, well, if perchance a woman would do that, I could never forget my child. Never. Because your names are engraven on the palms of my hand. The same concept is part of a story in 1 Kings chapter 3. You know the story well. Probably 1 Kings 3, King Solomon has just become king and he's the Lord appeared to him and said, Solomon, ask for anything you want. And Solomon says, I don't need riches or power. What I really need is wisdom. And God gave him wisdom. And so one of the first instances after he asked for that wisdom, there were two prostitutes 
who were living close to each other, maybe in the same house, and they both gave birth to boys about the same time. And one mother in the middle of the night in her sleep rolled over on top of her son and accidentally suffocated him to death. And she woke up was startled, saw her son was dead, and so she surreptitiously crept out of her bed and switched babies with a co-worker, if you will. In the morning, both moms woke up. The woman whose child had uh, lived saw a dead baby beside her and said, this is not my boy. That's my boy over there. She took my baby. This baby died. She took my baby. They went to the king. The king Solomon says this, And the king said, uh, the one says, this is my son that is alive and your son is dead. And the other says, no, but your son is dead and my son is the living one. And the king said, bring me a sword. So a sword was brought before the king and the king said, divide the living child in two and give half to the one and half to the other. Then the woman whose son was alive said to the king, because her heart yearned for her son. Same word for compassion, yearned. Oh, my Lord, give her the living child, and by no means put him to death. The other said, callously, he shall be neither mine nor yours. Go ahead and divide him. And then the king answered and said, give the living child to the first woman, and by no means put him to death. She is his mother. She says, my heart yearns from the same word for compassion. My heart yearns for him. See, what she was doing, she, she was really putting her neck on the chopping block. Because when she said, give that child, I'm, I'm lying, don't touch that child, give, give that child to her. What she was saying is, I've just lied to the king of Israel. That means, boom, you're dead. She said, the king said, no, she's the mama. Same concept. My heart yearns. My heart heart has compassion. As a mother has compassion on her nursing child, so the Lord has compassion on us. Do you ever stop and just say, God loves me? Abba, Father. There's safety. In John chapter 10, a well-known passage, Jesus says this about safety in the Lord. He says, "My, my sheep hear my voice. And I know them, and they follow me. You know, are you a child of God? Do you follow Christ? I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. There's security there. Security. Nothing happens in our life that doesn't come through the nail-scarred hands of Jesus. And we cry out, Abba, Father. And that makes all the difference. And the ups and downs of life, Abba, Father. I don't fully understand now, but I will one day. March 22nd, 1758, one of my heroes died. Jonathan Edwards, he's 55, smallpox had just become the newly installed president at Princeton. I read this letter frequently. I just think it's the greatest letter ever written, kind of, sort of. His wife is 48. She's packing up the house, moving to Princeton. When she hears word, she's had 10 children, nine of whom are still alive. Her daughter that was tending her husband 
and Princeton will die two weeks after that. But anyway, she has nine children living. She has no safety net, no insurance, no Social Security. Boom! 48, you're there. And she writes this letter to her daughter that her daughter never read because she died before she received it. Esther. But this, this letter just, it's just, listen. Dear Esther, why shall I say a holy and good God has covered us with a dark cloud? Stop. It's a dark cloud. My husband is dead. It's a dark cloud. But he's still a holy and good God. Oh, that we may lay, well, that we may kiss the rod and lay our hands on our mouths. In other words, don't murmur against God. The Lord has done it. He has made me adore his goodness that we had your father so long. But my God lives, and he has my heart. Oh, what a legacy my husband and your father has left to us. We are all given to God, and there I am in love to be your ever affectionate mother, Sarah Edwards. We are all given to God, and there I am in love to be. Wow. It's hard. It's difficult. It's a dark cloud, but he's still Abba Father. He's still God. And I read that, and I go, wow. Conversely, I've been reading excerpts from in a book review of a book entitled Raising Henry. It's written by a woman who's a professor of literature at Columbia University, New York. Brilliant woman who's not a believer. It's about having a, a Down syndrome child when she was totally unaware that was going to happen. And let me just read some excerpts and also some responses by a, a, a Christian road review in this book. The woman who, whose last name is, uh, is Adams, Rachel Adams, says, When I gave birth to my son, I could not stop crying. I'd like to say that I cried because I was worried about the baby upstairs in the NICU, but I didn't feel much of anything for him. I was mourning the loss of the son I thought I was going to have and the family I imagined we would be. And then the Christian a woman who wrote a response to this book he says it's a wonderful book, but it's, it's void of any concept of God. In fact, she says in the book, she says, I really, really prayed, quote unquote, that when people came to see me, they wouldn't talk about God or Jesus or heaven because I don't believe in any of that stuff. And this writer who reviewed the book says, as I read her account of the birth of, and the first few years of her son's life, I found that I sorrowed for her less for the challenges arising from Henry's mental and physical disability and more for the challenges arising from her own spiritual disability. While Dr. Adams' mind is terribly bright, her path lies in terrible darkness. What a statement. It's very bright, but the path is dark. When it comes to facing the bigger questions, the deeper struggles, the darker fears, Adams has nothing to hold on to but empty fatalism. She writes, quote, At the bottom, we humans are meat just like the lamb on my plate, close quote. We're nothing but meat. And she goes on and writes this. The woman in the book, the author says, I try to imagine what it would be like if Henry's story and mine had unfolded differently, what 
if I had made the different, what if I'd made different choices, taken more tests? I try, but I've never been able to do it. As John, my husband, says, matter of factly, soon after Henry was born, it happened to us. People say, well, it, it, uh, what's, this, what's Stephen Peter? Well, it, it just happens. I'm like, come on. And this woman writing the review says, Henry did happen. He has a disability, and there is, for Adams, no suitable reason or purpose for it. It just happened, and she's dealing with the consequences. She's right that Henry's life does demand a story, but she cannot see that even before Henry arrived, he was already part of a much bigger story, a story of which she is not the author. I can only hope that Rachel Adams will someday come to discover that Henry's life as well as her own, is one of deeper meaning and more eternal value than she's ever been able to comprehend. Wow. The goodness of God sustains. The Abba Father love gives absolute safety. Secondly, gives absolute confidence. He can be trusted. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives a statement that I think about Whenever I hear thing about the fatherhood of God, he says this. He says, Knock, asking shall be given to you. Uh, seeking you shall find. Knocking the door shall be opened. For everyone who asks receives, and to him who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door shall be opened. He says this. If your son asks for a bread, bread, you will not give him a stone. If he asks for fish, you wouldn't give him a snake. And if you then, though you are evil parents, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask Him? I go, wow. I have two grown children. I love them. I would die for them right now without a hesitation. And I think every parent here probably would say the same thing. I mean, easy decision. That's a no... Speaking of a no-brainer, your life for your kids, shoot me. Take me right now. No-brainer. And yet Jesus says to me as a parent, and I've tried to give him good gifts. I've been a failure many, many, many times. But he says, the love that Abba Father has for you makes you look like, or, or your children, makes you look like an evil parent. Think about that. And so you, you can have total confidence in God, the Abba Father who poured out his life on the cross for our sins, who's been given to us in the Holy Spirit, total confidence. You can walk through life with your head held high with, with, with confidence because God is God. He's your Abba Father. So when we're going to be excited to prayer, Jesus starts off by saying, learn this, Abba Father, who art in heaven, Abba Father. Heidelberg Catechism, question one. What is your only confidence in life and death? Answer, my only confidence in life and death, in body and soul, is that I am not my own, but I belong to my faithful Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who by his shed blood has satisfied the punishment that should be mine, and he destroyed the power of the devil, and he so watches over me that not a hair from my head can be moved without his permission. Wow. He's numbered the hair upon my head. He's paid the cross, for the, on the cross, my penalty. He's defeated the power of the devil in my life. That is my comfort. See, so the contemplation of that 
awakens joy and worship and hope in my heart. It makes me want to pray. See, see, the reality of who God is and thinking about the wonder of God awakens joy and sorrow, joy in singing and hope and excites childlike reverence and confidence. Romans 8, for example, all things work together for the good of those who love the Lord and call to according to his purpose. It's not like you have to muster up loving God. You just think about the reality of God and you love him. You think about his work in your life and you love him. You think about the fact that he withholds nothing from us and you love him. And so that, that, that awakens affections. Or Go to Proverbs 3, a passage many of you have memorized. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. He'll, he'll straighten it out. He'll, 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 he'll work. He'll bring his shalom. Now, what do, you, what do you mean? How do we do that? Well, be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. You'll be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. So, but, but you don't work it up. You think about the glory and the character of God, and you want to obey him. Do you sit back and say, Abba, Father. So as we go through this study on prayer, I'm going to say this a lot. We make prayer way too much, too, way too difficult. Jesus says, come to me as a child. You say, Abba, Father. You pray as you walk from appointment to appointment. You pray from stoplight to stoplight. So I'm going to, big application this morning, very quickly, is this. I'm just going to, one reason that we don't pray more, or we don't rejoice more, or worship more, or lay it out more, is because we are unacquainted with the glory and wonder of the triune God's love for us. So, so I'm, I'm going to argue strongly for you that you should stir up your, your passions. And one way to stir up your passions, this is just 101, I know, is to have a morning watch. And some of you are saying, well, you know, I'm a night person. Well, I'm not. But I'm still going to argue for the morning watch. See, my issue is, when I get up in the morning, if I do the most important things first, I do the most important things first. If I wait to do the most important things till later in the day, a lot of times I don't do the most important things. So first things first. So I, I, I believe I would, I would plead with you to be people who get up and the first thing you do is you seek God and you cry out, Abba, Father. And I'm going to tell you what I do. It's for free, no extra charge. I wake up in the morning, which is a good start to the day. You either wake up in the morning or wake up in glory. Two good options. So I wake up in the morning, I get up and go to the bathroom, stop. I'll just say that's what I do. Brush my teeth, put on some hot water for tea because I'm truly sanctified. I don't drink coffee. I drink tea. And so I put on a, some hot water for tea, and then I get my, I, I get my Bible, and I, I get a devotional guide. I use morning and evening by Spurgeon many a morning, and I'll read it, and I'll write down a thought. I'll review some verses. I'll write down a verse. I go to the e ESV Bible reading plan, Google it, boom, it's there. You read through the New Testament twice, the Old Testament once, and Psalms twice every year. And I'll read that, and I'll write down a thought. And my little journal will never be published because you can't read my writing in a second. It's not that good. But it, it, it stirs me up. And I, I, I have prayer lists for different days of the week. And I pray, for, I pray for you on your birthday. If you're a church member, I've got a list of all the members on their birthday. And so I'll pray for you on your birthday. And I'll, sometimes I'll see you out. I'll say, hey, how was your birthday this week? And I say, whoa, 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 whoa. How did you know that? And I'm always tempted to say, God just told me it was your birthday this week. 
I've got a list. I check it twice. I just, I do. And so on Monday, I pray for elders and deacons. On Tuesday, I, uh, I pray for PCA. On Thursday, I pray for campus outreach and some patches in North Africa. On Friday, I pray for Barnabas patches. On, I, I've just got different lists. I, it's nothing special, but I do it. But it begins, church, with this, Abba, Father. And my question is, are you stirring up your mind to impact your affections to love the living God? When Christ taught us to pray, he starts out, our Father, who art in heaven, our Father, to excite in us childlike reverence and confidence because he's God. And he can be trusted.